The title of today's message is Now Concerning Last Things, and it's taken from 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 through 24. This is our last session in 1 Corinthians. It's been a long trek. Glad to get through it, aren't you? Next week we'll be starting Zechariah. So if you'd like to, go ahead and read through that a number of times before we begin the book, and I think you'll better understand it as we make our way through the end times as predicted by Zechariah to the people of Israel. I'd like to begin with a word of prayer. Asking God to guide us in our time together. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for the word of God. It's the light, the lamp that shows us the way. Help us, Father, to heed its truth to us. Help us, Father, to apply it to our everyday lives. Help us to be enriched as we choose to walk as your disciple in this lost world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, a huge snow trastophy hit Washington, D.C. It dumped between 24 and 36 inches of snow on our seat of government. That prompted Donald Trump to declare that he would make winter great again. Well, the morning following the snow nino, the United States Senate was open for business. Wow, I still believe in miracles. They take any day off or any excuse. However, something was truly amiss on that morning in the Great Hall. As you can see behind me in the picture, Susan Collins, the senator from Maine, was one of the only two senators that showed up to do the people's work that day. It seemed that only two women were able to make it in through all that snow. Seriously? Where were all the other men senators? Are they just a bunch of girly men? These two Republican women, liberals, by the way, they both support abortion and homosexual rights, they found themselves as the only members on the Senate floor Now get this, surrounded by an all-female cadre of pages and clerks. Not one man in the bunch. So Collins took to the floor of the Senate and asked, Gentlemen, what are you doing? Making some herbal tea while your wives shovel your driveways? Y'all didn't show up to work this morning. I don't know where she got the southern accent from, from being from Maine. But your chick counterparts did, she said that morning. Apparently, like all the kids in the D.C. school system, the male politicians were looking for any excuse to take a snow day. Let me change the subject now for just a moment. By asking, do you remember the summer of 1972? Some of you are saying, no, I wasn't even born. Well, a best-selling book by Mario Puzo was turned into a blockbuster movie that summer. The Godfather was a huge hit. And the best scene in that movie, in my opinion, was where Vito Corleone's only daughter has just been married and all of his guests are celebrating in the backyard of his home. 
while he's busy fulfilling the duties of a Don. As the Godfather, his traditional duties called for him to fulfill the requests of any of his invited guests. Various characters come and go in his office. One asks for financial help, another asks for vengeance upon an enemy. But then, a close family member, Johnny, enters into his office. Johnny is a washed-up singer-actor who had just been refused a major part in a Hollywood film. Some speculate that the character is based on Frank Sinatra. Anyway, Johnny whines and cries and begs the Godfather to secure this movie role for him. He thinks it will be his ticket back to the big time. As he makes his request, he cries. He says, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Now watch this scene. Godfather, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. You can act like a man. What's the matter with you? Is this how you turn down a Hollywood Pinocchio that uh, cries like a woman? <laughs> what can I do? What can I do? What is that noise? Look at you. You spend time with your family? Sure I do. Good. Because a man who doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. You look terrible. I want you to eat. I want you to rest well, and a month from now, this Hollywood big shot's gonna give you what you want. Too late. They start shooting in a week. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. How does the Godfather respond to the crying of this former teen idol? He slaps him across the face and says, Act like a man! I believe there are some in the church today, some men, who could receive a good slapping now and then and be told to act like a man. Now, now before you get upset with me, it's not my suggestion. That's the Apostle Paul's. That's exactly what he says. So now, after 40 messages spread out over 10 months, we are about to come to the end of our travels through the book, Bud of 1 Corinthians. I don't know where you've been. 1 Corinthians, and as we wrap up this study of one of the very first churches, I'd like to remind you of the repeated themes that we've seen in this book so far. But first, a bit of history. Paul founded the church in Corinth in around 52 AD. He personally shared the gospel with many of those who came into the church initially. Paul then stayed and taught the basic doctrines of the church to them for 18 months. It was during this time that he first met Aquila and Prisca, or Priscilla, as she's known in other places, both of whom were converted Jews. They had just come from Rome, which had undergone a severe persecution initiated by the Roman government, in particular the emperor, when he granted an edict that caused all the Jews to leave the city. So Paul is the father of the church in Corinth. While living and ministering in Corinth, he wrote two letters to the church at Thessalonica. And after he left the church at Corinth, he returned to Antioch of Syria, and he stayed there for the next two years. Then, in or about the spring of 54 AD, he and his entourage left on what we know as his third missionary journey. Upon arriving back in Asia Minor, Turkey today, he 
stayed at the city of Ephesus for around three years, and he ministered there because it was a profitable ministry. During that time, approximately five years after being in Corinth, he writes two letters to the church at Corinth, both of them having been, having been initiated by negative correspondence that he had received. During those five years of absence, the Corinthian church had fallen into strife, division, moral sin, and cultural apostasy. Those are the themes that Paul has addressed. So then, how does one correct conflict from, a, from afar? That's Paul's dilemma. Does he drop everything that he's doing in Ephesus and run off to Corinth? Can he even fix the problems of this church? Or should he continue to minister to the people in Ephesus with this wide-open-door ministry? Paul decides that he can't go to Corinth at this time. So instead, he writes the letters that we've looked at in the past, particularly 1 Corinthians in the last few months. We're about to finish that letter now, and we will see that Paul has dropped using the carrot and the stick methodology, and he has just spoken to them from his heart about the lordship of Christ. In this letter, he addresses many of the issues that divide even churches today, such as the abuse of Christian liberty, legalism versus um, liberty. He corrects an erroneous view of salvation. He challenges them then to pursue sanctification. But these themes occur again and again, and as he comes to the end, he begins to apply them practically to everyday life. Now, as he closes, he wants to leave them with something that can be imprinted on their hearts and minds that they will remember into the future. He wants them to remember five moral exhortations to the, that are specifically relevant to any church. All five of these appeals are written as present tense imperatives. As you know, an imperative is a command. It's not something one can elect to do or choose to do. It's something that one should be doing and should not put off. The present tense aspect of this verb signifies that it, these verbs signify that they should be continually practiced from now into the future. When mom tells you to brush your teeth, she doesn't mean just this morning. She means every morning the rest of your life. And so these imperatives, these commands from Paul are to be practiced in their life from this point forward. With that as our setup, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, where we find these five commands, these five imperatives, beginning in verse 13. If you need to use the Pew Bible, you can find our text on page 1054. Paul writes to the Corinthians saying that they should be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men and be strong and love each other. These five imperatives, I believe, all revolve around the middle imperative, which is to act like men. Much like the planets revolve around the sun, these four commands on either side of the middle one are held together by the gravitational pull of that command. Paul uses in these motifs, these commands, a military concept, a military um, background. 
He uses this oftentimes in his letter. You'll remember in Ephesians chapter 5, he uses the Roman soldier's outfit um, as part of the way that the believer should equip himself and prepare for service. So Paul uses the military motif in a number of places in the scriptures. He has in mind here not one single soldier, however, but the whole army as he writes these commands. Every soldier in a Roman legion would have been familiar with these commands. The first is to be on the alert, to be alert. I think this command is many faceted and shouldn't just be isolated to one idea. First of all, it's a warning to the whole church, but particularly to men, to be on watch for those that will invade the church from the outside and cause division, the so-called false teachers. Paul urges them to be watchful. There are dangers out there. I also think this includes the idea of being watchful for the dangers within the church. The church in Corinth was being divided by people within the body of Christ. So spiritual men are to remain alert and deal with these issues and not ignore them, hoping that they'll go away. This is a military order to be on guard. Stand guard. The church, you know, is often compared to an army. It's unfortunate, however, that the church often lacks the discipline of an army. Now, you'll recall that Paul had previously compared the members of the church not to an army, but he compared the Corinthians to a nursery, remember? He called them babies. They acted like infants who needed a pacifier rather than a rifle. Paul urges them now to act like men and to be the soldiers that they've called to be in the Lord's army and to be on the alert, for you never know when you will be attacked. The evil one is always out there lurking, using other minions to attack God's work. But I think Paul also has something else in mind based on the be alert motif, and that is he's reminding them to be ready and waiting and watching for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is urging them to be ready to meet Jesus at some point, for the rapture is imminent. We saw that just in the last chapter that we studied. We also will see it in the two letters that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians from the city of Corinth. The phrase, be alert, is found in many places in Scripture. It's an important imperative. It's an important command. You and I are to be ready. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we read this admonition. So then, let us not fall asleep like others do, but let us be alert and sober. Paul wanted the men of the church to focus on the important things, the attacks from without and from within, and to be ready and waiting to lead the people when the Lord returns. The second command that he gives the Corinthians here. The second imperative is that they stand firm. This is another military metaphor in which soldiers were ordered to hold their ground at all costs. Retreat was verboten. Stand your ground. Notice that the command is to stand firm. They are to stand firm. They are not told to hold on to their good works. They are not told to stand firm in their natural abilities or to stand firm in the hope that they have. They are told not to hold on to their shields, not to hold on to their helmets, or even their Kevlar vests. No, they are commanded to stand firm in the faith, 
and notice that it's the faith and not your faith. We don't stand firm in our faith and faith. We stand firm in the faith. That is the body of truth called Holy Writ. The word of God is what sets us free, not our faith. Paul will write this same thing again and again. For example, he writes the Romans, urging them to stand your Stand by your faith. And to the Galatians, he says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. We are called to stand firm, to be stable, to be unwavering, to not be tossed around by every wind of doctrine. Paul frequently and often uses this imagery to call the believers to be committed to the truth, to not doubt, but to be firm in their beliefs. And this will help stop the division and strife that comes to every church. Paul urged the Philippians, listen to this, very important. He said, conduct yourself in a worthy manner of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or see you, or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the gospel. My brothers, stand firm in the Lord. And once again, he writes the Thessalonians. So then, brothers, stand firm, and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by letter from me. So you you see, we are to stand firm. We are to be ready if the Lord is to to return and he should find us standing firm and watching and waiting for him and not retreating. He is coming back soon. Now back in these days, when the army wasn't the place for social experimentation, the Roman legions had no women or funny people. That's why the third command is so important. It's central to the other imperatives. Paul commands the men to act like men. This is a call to manliness. Isn't that what the church needs today? Men who are men? We need male, mature leadership in the church and in our homes. I am often asked if a woman should be president. I think Paul's given you your answer here. But I'll leave that up to you. Leaders are to be men who act like men. I think that's a huge problem in our culture today. Women acting like men. Paul says that the way that men can act like men is to be bold, to be strong, to be bold, to be strong. This is the fourth moral command given by Paul to the believers, that they be strong in the Lord. That should automatically remind you of of Old Testament passages where the men were encouraged to be strong and courageous in the face of great opposition. You should recall, if you've been in the church for any amount of time, Moses's exhortation to Joshua in the book by his name. He said in chapter 1 to him, Be strong, be courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land, which was sworn to us by our fathers. 
Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all that is written in the law of Moses. My servant commanded you, do not turn from the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. I'm reminded of another place where the commander of David's army of mighty men, Joab, facing a huge Ammonite army, said this to his men, Be strong! And let us show ourselves to be courageous for the sake of our people and for the sake of our God. May the Lord do what is good and right in his sight. Men, be strong, be courageous, be brave. Well, I thought I'd get one amen. Should I do that again? Oh, forget it. You lost it. What is wrong with men today? They don't act like men. They act like women, don't they? That's even admired. Men that cry. Yes, it's appropriate to cry at times. But strength is not shown through tears. I can only think of one time that Jesus cried. One time. You remember? At the death of his dear friend Lazarus. And what did it say? Did it go on and make a whole bunch of big deal out of it? No, it says Jesus wept. Then this last command, the fifth imperative, says, let all, of you do, let all that you do be done in love. All the service that we do, the good works that we perform, should be done acting like men, being strong and courageous, but also should be done in love. All things should be done in love. Earlier in this very same book, he challenged believers to remember the knowledge that makes one arrogant, but love edifies. Knowledge makes one arrogant, but love edifies. You know, you can be the smartest man in the world and bring hope and change, but love edifies. Love is the greatest motivator for moral and ethical behavior. Notice, notice, look back at that verse and notice the word all, the adjective all. The emphasis is on all of our activities should be done in love, whether it's secular things that we do or religious, all should be done in the sphere of love. You know, that was one of the big problems in Corinth, as things weren't being done in love. Love brings into balance our lives. It brings into balance all of these commands. So Paul urges the church at Corinth, especially the men in positions of leadership, to be men of charity. Paul appeals to them to live in harmony with one another. For the furtherance of the gospel, let all be done in love. If the church would do that today, the strife and the division and the sin that characterizes the evangelical church today would be done away with. When we follow these commands of Paul's, these five moral imperatives, we will grow in our Christian life. Sanctification will be normal rather than abnormal. How can I know if that's happening in my life? How can I know if that's happening in someone else's life? Well, Paul gives us five signs of spiritual maturity in the next portion of this chapter. Look with me at verse 15. He says, Now I urge you, brethren... You know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. Did you ever wonder, am I growing in Christ? Am I maturing in the spiritual life? 
I'm convinced that the evangelical church is sick today. It looks at all the wrong signs for spiritual growth. They look at the sign of enthusiasm in the church as a sign that someone's growing in the Lord. You know, if someone's raising their hands and staring at the ceiling, they're the ones who are considered spiritual, aren't they? People often equate emotionalism with spirituality. Crying and weeping is somehow a sign of deep spirituality. But as I said, Jesus only wept once in his whole life, at least as revealed in Scripture. The first genuine mark of spiritual growth is service of others, serving others. I think these, by the way, appear in their order of a of importance. Notice here that those in the household of Stephanus, Stephanus devoted themselves for the ministry of the saints. Paul writes that they just got saved. They were the first fruits of his ministry. When Paul shared the gospel, Stephanus got saved and then his whole family followed him in belief. He probably shared the gospel with this man and then he took him home instantly to have dinner with his family. And Paul shared with them. And what did they do? They got involved instantaneously in serving others. It's interesting. You know what the King James says in this verse? It says, not devoted to service, but that they were addicted to service. Isn't that interesting? I love that. What a great metaphor. The church addicted to serving Jesus. It's awesome. These folks in Stephanus' house were serving so often, it appeared that they had an addiction. They were not hooked on phonics, they were hooked on ministry. It amazes me that as I grow older and see people around me and churches around me, many Christians will show great commitment to those who exploit them and take from them. And yet someone who serves them over and over, sacrifices for them, they show very little commitment and dedication to. It's a phenomenon, but I see it. But Paul urges these Corinthians to be committed to their servant leaders. Notice in verse 16, be in subjection to such men, that's Stephanus, and to everyone helps who helps in the work and labor. Today we see greatness exhibited by men in ministry, according to the world standard anyway, as those who do no work. They show up and they give a message and they jet off to their ski lodge at some snow mountain to the $50 million mansion. And the poor slob who works in the small church gives his life to ministry. He gets no acknowledgement or love. Paul says the exact, exact opposite of that. To be in subjection to such men. In other words... This is submission. Be in submission to the ministry of those that have proved themselves, even if they don't hold office. You realize here that Stephanos was not a deacon or an elder, but he had proved that he should have authority, he should be submitted to because of his demeanor, because of his devotion, his addiction, if you will, to Christ. So Paul urges them to choose voluntarily to be subject to such men who are bona fide leaders. Faithful service equates to servant leadership. 
Faithful service equates to servant leadership. That kind of servanthood should be recognized and rewarded. Notice what Paul states now in verse 13. I rejoice. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. Because they have, you say that ten times. Because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. These men filled Paul's heart with joy. These are the kind of people that leaders can get close to, to be intimate friends with. And these three men were that with Paul. So we know who Stephanos is. He is the first guy that got saved under Paul's ministry in Corinth, in Achaia. But who are these other two guys? Well, apparently, these three men were sent from Corinth to Paul in Ephesus carrying a letter. The letter that Paul responds to that we now know as 1 Corinthians. That letter bore some pretty harsh things in it that Paul needed to answer and respond to. But Paul states that these three men because of who they were, they actually make up for the deficiency that he found in the rest of the congregation in Corinth. These men bore bad news that had originally been brought by Chloe's household in chapter 1, but now it says that because of their godly friendship, they actually refreshed Paul. Because of their godly relationship with him, their friendship, they refreshed Paul. You know, one thing that's a warning here for us in ministry is that people that aren't close to the pastor often feel marginalized, that they're not the friend of the minister. Truth is, Paul had a deep friendship with these three men. Paul could trust them. When he asked them to do something, I'm sure that they did it without putting forth their own agenda or their own axe to grind. That's obvious by the phrase, they refreshed his spirit. I think that's one of the biggest compliments that you can give to another believer. You refresh me. I love being around people who pick up my spirit rather than discourage me, that encourage me to do my best rather than tell me how I should change in order to meet their expectations. You know those kind of people. They're always focused on what's wrong and how you should fix it. Such folks can't stand it when they don't have the ear of the leader because then they can't affect their own agendas. That's not refreshing. Paul says, they have refreshed my spirits and yours. There's a lot of people here at Lacey Chapel that refreshed my spirit. I love Venus Bailey. There's just something special about her infectious spirit. She's a blessing to everyone she comes in contact with. There are many others here as well. The Turners are a couple that refresh you every time that you are with them. I call them mom and dad. We love them so much. You know, you can be that person who refreshes someone's spirit. When you enter into a room, you should bring joy, peace, and love. And when you leave that room, the atmosphere should be different. It should be better. You should be, the people who are with you should be refreshed rather than irritated. These three men refreshed Paul's spirit. They encouraged him, despite the fact that they they were bearers of bad news. I guess just the way they shared the bad news with Paul was refreshing to him. Look at the last phrase of this verse, verse 18. Paul 
says that the church at Corinth should acknowledge such men. These are the men that deserve recognition. Those who serve selfishly, who have an attitude of love, grace, and peace. Usually the church gives attention to those that distress the body rather than refresh it. The biggest mouths who are always causing problems are the ones that usually get the attention. We have two godly elders here at Lacey Chapel, Dave and Bud, who have given a great portion of their adult lives to serving this body. I can tell you this for a fact. Much of their time as servants has been wasted by people who focus on the negative, who make unfounded accusations, who bring no hope and refreshment to our lives, but are a constant drag on the ministry. I would hope that they would be allowed to spend what little precious time they have left serving this body by you loving them, by you encouraging them, by bringing a fresh wind of peace to their lives. I think of refreshing people like Penny Rush, who always greets me on Sunday mornings with a holy kiss. Now, I know some of you are a little bashful and you don't like to do that. You'd rather hug or give a handshake. Can I encourage you to refresh others this morning? If you can't kiss on the, on the cheek, if you can't hug, you can at least send a note. Send a positive, loving, encouraging note to someone who needs it this week. My wife does a, a great job at that. Others tell me how her cards pick them up at their most down times. People love to hear you tell them that you care for them, that you are concerned about them. Put these things on your to-do list. Hug others. Love on others. Kiss others on the cheek appropriately. Send notes to them. Bring dinners to those who are down and out. What a wonderful way to refresh others. Notice that Paul practices what he preaches. Look with me at verse 19 when he tells the church at Corinth, The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Now, you don't know this most likely, but the churches in Asia were poor. They didn't have any money. The church that Paul was writing to, Corinth, was a wealthy body of believers. And all these poor Gentiles are sending their good wishes to the church at Corinth, even though they had heard about all the negativity taking place there. Even Aquila and Priscilla, who had worshipped in Corinth with these people, having church in their very own house there, send them their greetings. This wonderful couple, this husband and wife team, met Paul in Corinth. As I said, they had to leave Rome because of an emperor's edict, and they made their way to Corinth. And they brought with them their business and all their household goods. They were tent makers just like Paul. So when they met Paul, they opened their home to Paul. Paul lived with them for 18 months. They were a wonderful couple who served the Lord. Not only did they pack up business and household goods from Rome because they had to, then they voluntarily chose to do it to help Paul in the ministry. They moved from Corinth to Ephesus to help Paul minister in the church there. We learn this from the book of Acts in chapter 18. And then they moved from Corinth back to, to, uh, from Ephesus back to Rome to do the same thing when Paul was imprisoned there. So Paul sends his greetings. 
from all those in the churches of Asia. That would be the west coast of Turkey. To the church in Corinth. From Aprila and Quisilla. Aquila and Priscilla. And all the others. Isn't it awesome to have friends in the Lord? To have those people that love Jesus as your closest acquaintances? That's Paul with Aquila and Priscilla. They were his deep friends. They served together. They reached out to the lost in Corinth, Ephesus, and Rome with the gospel message. They discipled new believers. You'll recall Aquila and Priscilla took Apollos under their wing. We find this lovely couple's name six times in the Word of God. Isn't that awesome? How would you like your name to be in the Bible six times? And it's always in a positive way. And in fact, Priscilla, the woman, is mentioned twice first. That means that she took the lead at times over her husband. She was a devoted leader, a devoted wife, a devoted witness. And they worked together, husband and wife, as a team, serving the Lord and serving Paul. When Paul moved, they packed up and moved household and business with him, all to assist him. Sometimes they planted a church, and other times they discipled, all at the leading of Paul's direction. Please notice that this couple practiced hospitality. They just didn't talk about it. They opened their house for the whole church to come to every Sunday, every first day of the week. We learn in the passages of Scripture where they mentioned, where they are mentioned, they did this not only in Corinth, but in Ephesus and Rome. Their house was the church. And as I said, Paul also lived in their house with them for 18 months. You know, guests have often been compared to fish. After three days, they should be thrown out. But for 18 long months, Paul stayed in one of those cramped little houses living with these folks. They had an awesome ministry. They had an awesome ministry of evangelism. They had an awesome ministry of discipleship. And then, praise God, they got to start a jail ministry with Paul. There can be no greater tool for the gospel than a home which is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ. Parents, your responsibility is to train your children, to teach them to love and serve the Lord, not in the church, but in the home. We think of the church plant as being the place where ministry gets done, but the truth is the best lessons that can be learned are learned in one's home. If your child sees you loving Jesus in your home, he or she will imitate that in the future. I hope you see the value of hospitality, of using your home for the Lord, using it as one of the greatest tools that you've been given to reach out to others with the gospel, to train others, and to just be what God intended us to be. Open home, open ministry. I wonder just how many of us would be willing to move for the ministry's sake, not as a pastor or a missionary, but just you, as a person in the pew, asked to leave your home to go somewhere else. It's not for economic reasons, not for job reasons, but for the Lord's reasons, for ministry purposes. Next, Paul shares a general greeting. From the rest of the folks in Ephesus to those in Corinth, he says, All the brothers greet you. Everybody wants to wish you a hello. Greet one another. 
with a holy kiss. You see, telling someone that you love them isn't enough. You have to show it. And the people at this time showed their affection by the exchange of a holy kiss. That was the practice of the day. Pecking one another on the cheeks. Showed your great affection for them. Paul takes a a custom of the day, in which all people did this, and he makes it a custom of believers by adding the word holy. That should take away any untoward thinking about this kind of a kiss. A peck on the cheek is an awesome symbol. It's an awesome metaphor of unity and love. This should do away with any cliques, any infighting and division. After all, how can you be mad at someone you've just kissed? This kind of affection is also a cure for personal isolation. You know, there are many in our body that just can't get out anymore. And when we show them how much we love them and care for them, it makes a huge difference. Rather than just an impersonal hello, a hug, a kiss, a peck on the cheek, is really a boost to those who are isolated. Sue kisses others on the cheek. I have done so. If I feel the other person wants it, But, you know, for some reason, that's become verboten in the church today, hasn't it? It's not practiced like it once was. The holy kiss has become associated with something that might lead to abuse. Unfortunately, we've heard all these stories of infidelity by church members and pastors, and it's troubling to us, and sometimes we don't want to get close to others. And some, the truth is, can't distinguish between a holy kiss and another kind of affection. But the biggest killer, in my view, of the Holy Kiss has been the change in the way that we do church. The church has become less and less a place of koinonia, fellowship, and more and more of just a place of people meeting together for community. In Paul's day, church was held in someone's home, a small domicile that could only fit a few people. It was much more personal, intimate, and friendly. Today, we go to these monstrous campuses, or worse, cathedrals, to meet for so-called worship. But a home is a place where we feel welcome and cared for. It's more conducive, isn't it, to ministry. It's the most natural thing in the world to worship the Lord together with someone else in their home, rather than a building that looks like a business. But most people want, for some ungodly reason, I don't know what it is, they want their churches to grow and become big monstrosities. Bigger is better in America. But let me tell you, that comes with a severe price. The intimacy of the house church is lost. Long gone are the holy kisses that people used to share with one another. It's been my desire, when serving a church, to know the people intimately, to care about them, and to have them care for me. And fortunately, that's not always been the cases in the churches that I've served. I've felt in some churches that I've been in, they didn't care for me as a person at all. They viewed the pastor as just another expendable commodity, sort of like copy paper. We'll just get a new box. For many, church is big business rather than family. So let me ask you to examine your heart. Do you feel affection towards others here at Lacey Chapel? Do you feel affection for your pastor, for your elders, for the members that you worship with every Sunday? Or are you here just to get something for self? If so, if so, 
you will never know the intimacy that can be yours as a brother and a sister in Christ sharing life together with one another. The bigger, the more scattered congregations find it more difficult to experience that real thing. How can you know someone when you're just another face amongst the thousands, sitting in seats separated by aisles? In my, in my opinion, a church that is a collection like that is just a collection of strangers and acquaintances. They can never be a real church. When believers know one another intimately and greet one another with the holy kiss or some kind of affection, they are part of another person's life. Do you know that? Mark, quit, quit kissing him. <laughs> Funny. A lack of intimacy will kill and divide a people. Notice in verse 22 that Paul wants to make this so personal that it says he sends this greeting in his own hand. He picks up the pen. Now, you have to understand that these letters were dictated to a secretary, an Emmaus. They wrote as it was dictated to them by the writer. But we know that Paul had an eye problem. We know that Paul, after suffering some kind of serious persecution, probably couldn't see as best as he should have. And so he needed a secretary. But now he takes up that pen so that they will know that Paul was the author of this, and he writes in his own words his greeting. (coughs) This is not the first time Paul has done this. He did this also when he wrote to the Galatians, and he did it in the second letter that he wrote to the Thessalonians. Some have argued that he did so to validate the letter because there were many forgeries, but I believe it because Paul, I believe Paul did it because he wanted people to know that he cared for them. Now he closes with two admonitions. The first is in verse 22. Two admonitions. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is accursed, Maranatha. A lot of confusion about this text. I hope I can straighten it out for you because this almost sounds as if you don't love the Lord you will go to hell. I fear this verse is often misunderstood by the interpreters of it who are Reformed or Calvinistic in persuasion. They often comment on this text by saying something along the lines as this, If you do not love the Lord your God with your whole heart and your whole soul, you will be accursed. That is an Aramaic word, which means anathema. You will be sent to hell is the idea. They think that such folks are insincere, tares among the wheat, that their false belief is exposed by their lack of love for Jesus. These fake believers, according to the Reformers, will be set aside for judgment and hellfire. These Reformers say that a true Christian is a person who loves the Savior above all else. He loves Jesus more than anyone or anything, and a failure to love Jesus in this way shows that there's no way of escaping hellfire for them. No loopholes, no excuses. Well, this kind of teaching disturbs me greatly because I know I love the Lord Jesus, but I, like Paul, who said at the end of his life, I recognize about myself that I am the chief of all sinners. I am like Peter, 
who the Lord Jesus had to come to and ask him three times, Peter, do you love me? And if we were truthful, at times we would say no. But I think that's a misunderstanding of the language here. Paul uses two Aramaic words, not Greek, two Aramaic words. The second Aramaic word, and I've already talked about the first, which means anathema, accursed. The second Aramaic word that he uses here is maranatha. This is that's a transliteration, what we have in our text. But it means, Lord, come quickly. The Apostle John used the same word to close out the book of Revelation in chapter 22 and verse 20, which reads this way, Even so come, Lord Jesus. So if we combine these two words, erase the period that the English translators have put in there. You do know this is an English translation. In the Greek, the words run from the left to the right with no kind of punctuation. So this is someone's idea a thousand, two thousand years later of what this text should say. So I suggest to you, you erase the period that they wrongly put in here. And it could be much better translated in this manner. If you do not love the Lord, you will be judged when the Lord comes. And he's coming quickly. Whatever the case is, This is a queer combination of these two words. One warns of accursedness, judgment, and the other one warns of the Lord's quick return. We are to love the Lord above all else because he might return quickly and find us what we're doing. I think that's the idea here. This is not a warning that you're going to go to hell. This is a warning when you stand before God at his Bema seat as a believer, and he might come quickly and find you. You will lose all sorts of rewards that he wants to give you. You know what's really odd about this verse? Paul uses two Aramaic phrases that's Jewish language, like pig Latin almost, that was spoken in Israel only. He uses two Aramaic phrases and he's writing to a Greek audience in Greece. Why would he do that? Well, I kind of think this is... Oh, by the way, when I looked at this, no commentator mentioned this. So this is original to me. But I believe that what Paul is doing here is he's giving out insider information. Only those in the church would be familiar with these terms. When did you come to know Maranatha? Wasn't it as a believer when you entered into the church? This is kind of secret code between Paul and those in the church at Corinth to remind them of the importance of living and loving Jesus so that you can expect a better reward when he comes. He, come, he caps this off, as I said, with a twofold blessing. We find the first in verse 23 and the second in verse 24. The first is, may the grace of the Lord be with you. That doesn't fit with judgment or cursedness, does it? Why would he turn around and say that? So reformers can't be right. Paul says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. As you're on your way to hell, I think not. I don't see God as an angry God who wants to crush you like a bug because you've done something wrong and send you to hell, no. 
Paul is expressing his love for the people at Corinth, who were selfish, arrogant, and divisive people, and yet he's expressing his love and compassion and concern for them. He's using grace, unmerited favor, and he's expressing it towards them. May they know grace. What a blessing. What a ble- Do you know grace? He's not threatening them with hell. There is a hell. There is a reality of hell that I believe in with my whole heart. But Paul's not saying that to these believers. He's emphasizing the grace of God, the unmerited forgiveness that is ours as Christians. That was Paul's theology and lifestyle. Secondly, Paul expresses his love for these people. Look with me at verse 24. Love be with them all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Gee whiz. Did you know Paul wrote 13 letters, 13 epistles? This is the only one in which he gives an affirmation to the people saying that he loves them. That's really interesting. It's really interesting that Paul now boils down the spiritual life to one word. Love. Notice that love is for all in the church. Grace and love is for all of you as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ because they heal divisions and hate. Okay. There it is. We're done. Over. Finito. On to Zechariah next week. But first, let me share just a couple of applications of this text. First, as a soldier of the Lord, we must be on the alert for his coming. We must be on the alert for those enemies that would destroy the fellowship in which we live. So we must act like mature men and stand our ground and be strong, disciplined, and do it in love. If we do these things, if we exercise these character traits in our life, We will serve others willingly. We will submit to authority. Our best friends will be those that are in the church serving alongside of with us. Finally, our homes will be a place of God's glory and grace. All of this, all of this is motivated by our deep abiding love for the Lord Jesus Christ as we stand as sinners in need of grace awaiting his return. Would you bow with me as I close our time together this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you for this text, this book written to the Corinthians. It teaches us so much about the Christian life. It is so rich with truth. Lord, help us to be people who exhibit character of love, grace, mercy, acceptance, contentment. Help us to be like our Lord Jesus so that we might better serve you, that our homes might glorify you, that we might be people who see Christ in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.